One of the most common expressions in our day and age, and I'm sure you've heard this, is the saying, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. It would not be an exaggeration to assert that few sayings are more dangerous and deadly than that erroneous statement. Sincerity is not the most important issue when it comes to truth. Let me illustrate this a couple of ways. Suppose a well-meaning nurse gave the wrong medicine to a patient. Would the sincerity change the consequences? Obviously not. Suppose a man heard someone stirring around in his house in the middle of the night and assuming it was a murderer shot the person who turned out to be his daughter. Would the man's sincerity or good intentions change the consequences? Obviously not. Sincerity is a great virtue. Please do not misunderstand me. Sincerity is a great virtue, an important virtue. But it is not a substitute for truth and accuracy. It is possible to be sincere but sincerely wrong. If you want to drive to Los Angeles, but you are on a highway going east, all the sincerity in the world will not get you to your destination. The same thing can be said for your eternal destiny. That is why I assert that there are very few sayings that are more dangerous, more deadly than the saying, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Frankly, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It does matter what you believe, because if you believe the wrong things, or if you refuse to believe the truth about Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture, you will not reach the right eternal destiny. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. This was the warning given by the beloved Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2. Let's turn there together over near the end of the New Testament to the little but powerful epistle called 1 John <coughs> chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 18 through 27, which form a paragraph of thought. We covered part of these, or some of these verses last Lord's Day, but this is a unit, so I'll read all of it for us this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, or you all know I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning." 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. We began this paragraph in the last message as we covered verses 18 through 23 in some detail. John opened this section of his letter with a term of, a, of affection or a term of endearment by referring to his readers as little children or dear children. As I've mentioned in past messages, John was in his 80s and maybe in his 90s when he wrote this letter. So he saw his readers as his dear little children. Therefore, he had a huge heart of compassion for them, and he wanted to do all that he could to protect them from confusion and protect them from error. That's what prompted him to write these words that we have just read. He knew there was the potential that they would be confused by the false spiritual leaders who were enticing them. He knew how confusing religion And religious leaders can be, especially if they talk about Jesus and claim to believe in Jesus. So he writes these words to warn and to instruct and to protect his readers and us by extension. This section of scripture that we considered last Lord's Day and we'll finish today. This this section of scripture is a reminder to us. That religion is Satan's greatest masterpiece and most brilliant plan to confuse people. When we think of the work of Satan, we often think of things like drug addiction, alcoholism, prostitution, pornography, murder, witchcraft, sorcery, occult practices, etc. Granted, Satan is involved in those things, but his greatest work is religion. Satan loves to confuse people with religion, and especially religion that claims to be Christian. That's why John was so concerned as he penned this letter. Not only does he give this warning here in verses 18 through 27, he will return to this exact same subject over in chapter 4 when he opens that chapter by saying, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Try the spirits. Examine the spirits to determine whether they are of God. This was a huge issue in John's mind and on his heart. He wanted his readers and us to know that there are many people who had usurped a position in place of Christ, and many of those people are called pastors, vicars, cardinals, fathers, popes, priests, reverends, etc., Those who refuse to embrace, accept, and promote a fully and truly biblical Christ have, whether they admit it or not, adopted a position that is actually anti-Christ or against the true Christ as he is presented in Scripture. This is the Holy Spirit's warning through the beloved Apostle John. He says in verse 19, they went out from us. 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. These false religious leaders and teachers had previously spent time around true believers. But somewhere along the way, and for some reason, they had walked away. They had departed. They decided that the biblical picture of Christ is not the one with which they are comfortable. As a result, they left, verse 19 says. But, and here's a key point, they left, but they didn't want to throw out Jesus completely, so they just redefined him. Still talked about Jesus, still proclaimed Jesus, still said they believed in Jesus, but they redefined him. That is exactly what John is describing here in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, they left us, but they were never really a part of us. Then he adds, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they had been true and genuine believers in the Lord Jesus, as he is presented in Scripture, they would have not bailed out. They would have not walked away, never to return. And then the last part of the verse says that their departure demonstrated that they were not real and genuine. In contrast to those false disciples, John added the next verse, verse 20, but, contrast, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. John is basically saying this, listen, the Holy Spirit of God has given you life. He has taken up residence in your life. He has enlightened you to be able to grasp the truth. You already know the truth. You don't need to wonder if you're missing something. You all know. My translation says, you know all things, which could be a little misleading because they obviously weren't omniscient. They didn't know everything there is to know, or else John would not be writing this letter to instruct them. But here, John is affirming that they already knew the truth about Christ. They had heard the truth about Him. They had believed the truth about Him. They knew who He was. They knew what He claimed. They knew what He taught. They knew what He stood for. They knew Christ. They didn't need to be listening to these false teachers. They didn't need to listen to these people who had walked away from that accurate picture of Christ. And so John says in verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. This verse shows us that John was not implying in verse 20 that they knew everything, but rather he was saying they already did know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been taught accurately From the apostles, they had believed properly. They didn't have to be worried that they had believed in something that wasn't true. They didn't have to be concerned that they had missed something. The religious people and leaders who were trying to deceive them, as John mentions in verse 26, which we'll come to in a little bit, these leaders, these people, these teachers did not have some kind of new information about Jesus, some kind of secret knowledge of him. Their new perspective of Jesus did not find its source in the truth. And that's what John means by the last phrase of this verse. No lie comes from the truth. The information these religious people and leaders were propagating did not line up with the truth, and therefore, it was a lie. John says in verse 22, Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. 
And this verse, verse 23, makes clear what John is saying in verse 22. A person cannot deny the full sonship of Jesus and all that means, but still be in a right relationship with God the Father. Such a, such a person does not have God the Father, regardless of what he or she claims. Beloved, there is no middle ground on this issue. Not on this issue. The only way to be right with God the Father is to embrace Jesus as He is presented in Scripture. He is the God-man. He was not divinely human. He was not humanly divine. He was not a deified man. He was not a humanized God. He was as much God as if He were not man at all. He was as much man as if He were not God at all. He was not all God and no man. He was not all man and no God. He was not half God and half man. He is the God-man. He is 100% God and 100% man. He has always been and always will be God, but at a point in time He became human. A human nature was added to the person who existed from all eternity as the very essence of God. A human nature was added. A person wasn't added. Jesus was not two persons during his stay here on the earth. He was not. That was the Nestorian error in church history. Neither was Jesus a split personality so that he did some things with his deity, some things with his humanity, and he was split somehow. And neither did he only possess one nature that, that was the result of the mingling of the two natures. There was no mingling. That was the Eutychian error in church history. The addition of this human nature took place without any mixing. So I'll say it again. A human nature was added to the person who existed from all eternity as the very essence of God. That is why we refer to Jesus as the God-man, the God-man. That's who he is as presented in the Word of God. That was the message proclaimed by the apostles from the very beginning. They were the ones who saw him. They were the ones who studied him. They were the ones who heard him. They talked with him. They listened to him. They spent time with him. This was the message they proclaimed from the very beginning. In light of that reality, John writes the next verse, verse 24. He says, Therefore, therefore, in light of this, Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is such an important verse of Scripture. I have lost count of the number of people I have known through the years who have wandered away from the Lord wandered away from the truth, turned away because they were looking for something new in the Christian life, something new in Christianity. It happens all the time. There are people who have been raised in the truth or who have been around the truth for a lot of years, but for some reason they start thinking that they are missing something or that there is some kind of new truth out there somewhere. So they go in search of some new truth or something they think they've been missing. I'm sure John had seen this same kind of thing in his many years 
of life in his many years of ministry. And that's why he says, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. In other words, don't move away from the truth. You don't need something new. You haven't missed anything if you've been taught the truth. You don't need something more. Just stay with what you've been taught from the beginning. See that it remains or abides in you. In fact, the second half of this verse says, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. What a promise. If, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. What a promise and what a warning. If we wander off looking for something new, something different, something that we think is more, we remove ourselves from the privileged position of abiding in the Son and in the Father. Now what is John talking about here? He is. Let me first begin by what he is not talking about. John is not talking about losing our salvation. He is talking about something that is a sad possibility in the life of every Christian, and that is when we fail to abide deeply in Christ. You see, it is possible to be a Christian, but not be abiding in Christ like we ought to be. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, down in verse 28, just the, the, the very next verse after this paragraph, John gives the following exhortation, And now, little children, abide in Him. The very fact that John exhorts believers to abide in Christ proves that it is possible to be a Christian who does not abide in Christ. Otherwise, this verse is meaningless. You don't have to say this to a believer, a child of God, or to God's people. You don't have to say, now little children abide in Him. The very fact that John exhorts believers to abide in Christ proves that it's possible to be a Christian who does not abide in Christ. Let me give an example of this in illustration by comparing it to another area of relationship or another relationship with which we are familiar in life. It is a sad fact that it is possible to be married but not be in love. What I mean is the way things are supposed to work is that two people get married because they love each other and their marriage should increase their love for each other. But sadly, as you know very well, people don't always go that way in marriage. They allow things or they allow circumstances or they allow their own choices to rob them of their love, to steal their love, to block their love. So it's possible to be married but not be in love. In the same way, it's possible to be a Christian in a relationship with Jesus Christ but not abide in Him and not abide in His love. That's a distinct possibility. You're still in a relationship with him. You still are in that relationship, but the relationship is not near what it should be. That's why Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's an interesting phrase. Keep yourselves in the love of God. When Jude says that, he is not saying keep yourself saved. We couldn't get saved by ourselves in the first place, so we can't stay saved by ourselves afterward. So when Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about staying in the place where we can experience the benefits of God's love. 
keep yourself in that position, in that type of uh, uh, scenario. Let me illustrate it this way. In the story of the prodigal son, most everyone here is familiar with the story of the prodigal son. In that story, did the father love the son? Sure he did. That's That's the main point of that entire parable, is the father's great love for the son. So let me ask you this. Did he love the son less when he was rebelling than when he was at home? No. No less love. The only difference was not in the love of the father, but in the location of the son. When the son was home, he was in the position to benefit from the father's love. But when he left home, he removed himself out of that position. When he repented and came back home, he came back into that position. But here's the point. The love of the father never changed. But the location of the son did change. It's the same way in our walk with the Lord. When we go astray, when we remove ourselves from the place where we can experience the benefits of God's love. God's love hasn't changed when we wander, when we go astray. We've changed. We've changed our, how we relate to that love. When we wander from the truth to look for something new or to look for something different, we remove ourselves from the privileged position of abiding in the Son and in the Father. Why would we do that? Why would we remove ourselves from the privileged position of abiding in the Son and in the Father to look for something new or look for something different when we have been given the greatest promise possible, as John mentions in the next verse? In verse 25, he says this, And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. The promise of the gospel is the promise of eternal life. That is at the heart of the gospel message. Isn't that enough? Why is it that people go in search of something different or go in search of something novel or go in search of something new, yet, as I mentioned, this happens on a regular basis? People who have known the gospel for years People who have been raised in a gospel-preaching church or people who have spent significant time in a gospel-preaching church who have been around the truth for years will leave to go look for something new or something different as if they are missing something. They go looking for something better despite the fact that the promise of the gospel is the promise of eternal life. What could be better than that? What is more important than that? In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Nothing is more important than eternal life. Nothing. The man in Luke 16 learned that too late. So when he ended up in Hades, as Jesus told the story, he begged that someone be sent to warn his brothers lest they also end up in that place of torment. You see, heaven is real. Hell is real. And people who die without a relationship with Christ will end up in hell whether they believe in it or not. As I often say, it's like the law of gravity. You can deny it all you want to, but if you step off a cliff, you will go down. Hell is real. 
And that is why the promise of eternal life, it's one of the reasons why the promise of eternal life is the most important promise in the Bible. And the promise of eternal life is at the heart of the gospel that was preached from the very very beginning by the apostles who heard our Lord and saw our Lord and spent time with our Lord. So why would people who have been around the truth of the gospel go in search of something different and go in search of something new? That's John's point here in verses 24 and 25, which is why he says, Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Now let me answer this question that I have asked a couple times here in the message. I've asked it rhetorically. Why would people who have been around the truth of the gospel go in search of something different? Why would they go into some bizarre religion, some bizarre belief system? Why would they go in search of something new? Why? The answer is this. People move away from the gospel when they are deceived. That's why, when they are deceived. People, whether Christian or non-Christian, move away from the gospel when they are deceived into believing there is something better, something more, something they are missing, something new. John completely understood that, which is why he added the next verse, verse 26. These things... I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you or those who are trying to lead you astray. Beloved, this is an age-old problem. It's been around as long as the gospel has been around. It was around in Jesus' day. John saw it then. He heard Jesus talk about it then. And John had watched this happen in the, in the 50-plus years that he lived after our Lord ascended back into heaven. Satan is a counterfeiter. Satan is a deceiver. He hates the truth. He hates the gospel. And he hates it when people hold to the truth of the gospel. He hates that. He despises that. In John 8, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's who Satan is. Therefore, his goal is to mislead people. His goal is to deceive people. His goal is to lead people astray. And mark it well, he uses everything at his disposal to accomplish that task. As I mentioned earlier in the message, one of his primary ways of doing this is through religion and religious leaders. Oh, how difficult it is for people to accept that fact. Amazingly difficult for people to accept that fact. When people look at the occult, they think of Satan. When they look at religion, most don't think of Satan. That's exactly how he wants it. That is exactly how he wants it. Yet Satan is behind so much of religion, and he uses religious leaders to deceive people, to lead people astray by telling them, just as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. 
This is what Jesus warned about in Matthew 7, 15, when he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. John was standing there that day and heard Jesus say that. He never forgot it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing was that which was worn by true shepherds. So the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 7.15 is that many people who look like true spiritual leaders are not really true spiritual leaders. They may have the position. They may dress the part. They may use the language. They may be called father or reverend or pastor or preacher. So it would be easy to assume that they are true spiritual leaders when in reality they are false prophets. According to Revelation 2.8, Satan has his religious institutions, churches, synagogues, etc. According to 2 Corinthians 11.13-15, he has his ministers. There, Paul says that his ministers transform themselves into the apostles of light. And then according to 1 Timothy 4.1, he has his doctrine. So he has the whole package. Churches, ministers, doctrine. He has it all. Satan is really into religion. All kinds of religion. And he uses the myriads of false teachers that have always been prevalent in the world. But listen, the deceiving and the scary part about it is that these false prophets and false teachers do not come across as dangerous. They may be nice men or women. Sincere kind, gracious, friendly. But their message is damning because they don't present the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is why Jesus said that inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Externally, they may be nice, friendly, kind, gracious, very likable. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. By the way, Jesus is not saying that all false prophets are deliberately trying to steal from people and hurt people and things like that, but the end result is still the same. They are ravenous wolves in the sense that they do end up destroying people's lives with their message. And even worse, they sometimes end up destroying people's eternal destiny. They look the part of a true spiritual leader, but their actual condition is such that they are deadly, said Jesus. Beloved, please understand, and I've said this, I don't know how many times in the past, I will continue to say it as long as the Lord gives me breath. False prophets do not walk around with a sign hanging around their necks that reads, I am a false prophet. That's not how they present themselves. If it were obvious that they were false prophets, then they would have little to no following. It's not obvious that they are false prophets. They have the look, they have the talk, they have the position, they have the respect. And that's what makes them so dangerous. As I said earlier, it is really difficult for people to accept the fact that there are many religious leaders who are spiritually destitute. But that is exactly what Jesus warned about in Matthew 7, 15. And John follows the example of Jesus here in verse 26. 
John is warning his readers not to believe that there is something new, not to believe that there's something more, not to believe that there's something they are missing. They don't, verse 26 says, they don't need to be listening to these people who are trying to deceive them and trying to lead them astray. They already had the truth. So why go looking for something else? And then John closed this paragraph with verse 27. He says, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. This verse is very similar to what John said back in verse 20. So we need to take this statement in its context. Otherwise, you can pull this verse out of its context and end up teaching something that it's not really saying. For example... It is obvious that John is not suggesting here in this verse that Christians don't need any human teachers. That's the way some people have interpreted this verse, which contradicts so many other passages of Scripture. After all, think about this. It would be a complete contradiction if John is suggesting that Christians don't need any human teachers when he is writing this letter to teach them. That would be a contradiction. So the very fact that John is writing this letter to teach them makes it clear that he is not suggesting in this verse that Christians don't need any human teachers. Furthermore, Ephesians 4.11 specifically states that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, has given gifted teachers to his church for the purpose of equipping the saints. If the Lord Jesus has given human teachers to his church for the purpose of teaching, then it's obvious that John is not suggesting here that Christians don't need any human teachers. That's one wrong way that many people take this verse. Let me mention another. Neither is John saying that because the Holy Spirit resides within us as Christians, we don't need to study the Bible. We don't need to read the Bible. We don't need to to put any time into the effort to try to, to understand the Bible because the Holy Spirit will teach us everything we need to know apart from studying the Bible. Now, this verse is not an excuse for a lack of diligent study. This verse isn't a guarantee that all your interpretations or my interpretations are 100% correct, which is how some want to use this verse. Well, I know I'm right because I have this anointing, they say. I mean, think about it. If you try to use this verse as a trump card with other Christians to claim that all your interpretations are right, then those same Christians can turn right around and make the same claim or assertion. No, mine are all right because I have the, I'm a Christian. I have this anointing from the Holy One. So I'm right and you're wrong. So if that's not what John is saying, what is he saying in this context? And the, the key phrase in that statement is, in this context. He is saying that these believers, like all Christians, have the resident Holy Spirit within to give us discernment concerning things that are presented to us as the truth. Therefore, we don't need to listen to false teachers. We don't need to be influenced by false teachers. We don't need to take heed to those who would try to lead us astray. Remember, take verse 27 
following verse 26. He just said, I'm writing these things concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So there were people actively trying to deceive them. And John says, you don't need to believe them. You don't need to listen to these teachers because you already know the truth about what they are addressing. Again, I want to emphasize, this verse is not intended to be an excuse for laziness with Scripture, but there is this reality in the life of every true child of God. The resident Holy Spirit of God has subjectively confirmed to our hearts the truth that is presented in the Word of God, so we don't need to listen to anyone who tries to teach us things that are contrary to the truth of the Word of God. You could say it this way. The Christian who ends up straying from the truth and into error has to fight. Now think about this. Has to fight to go contrary to what he or she already knows to be true. The resident Holy Spirit of God is with us to, among other things, to protect us from wandering into error and being deceived. And that is why John's last three words here in this verse are actually a command. He says, abide in him or remain in him. Some translations say you will abide in him or will remain in him, which is not in most of the early manuscripts. It's better taken as a command or an imperative. Abide in him. Remain in him. In other words, don't be moved away from the truth of the gospel. Don't be sidetracked. Don't believe that you've missed something. Don't believe there's something more out there. Don't believe there's something new. Don't be deceived. That's the Holy Spirit's message here in verses 18 through 27. Now, as we begin to wind down this morning, I want to come back to something I said earlier, and it is this. Nothing, absolutely nothing is more important than eternal life. John says in verse 25, this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Nothing is more important than that. Heaven is real, hell is real, and people who die without a relationship with Christ will end up in hell whether they believe it or not. So I ask you, do you know Jesus Christ genuinely, personally, as your own Lord and Savior? Have you embraced the truth of the gospel? Have you believed the truth of the gospel? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Nothing, absolutely nothing, is more important than that. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes, please take just a couple minutes here at the end of our service, to think about what you have seen with your own eyes in God's Word, what you have heard, what you have understood coming from Holy Scripture, that there is this possibility, even if you're a genuine child of God, there is this possibility to be deceived, to be led astray, to be confused by believing you've missed something, there's something more, there's something new, that these these views of the Bible are too restrictive. You've got to go outside of Scripture, outside of the Bible, to find something contemporary, something relevant. Don't be deceived. 
Don't be misled. Don't allow false teachers, false prophets to confuse you. Just believe what the apostles, the prophets have taught since the very beginning. They were the ones who were with the Lord. They were the ones who heard him, saw him, interacted with him. They have given us the truth, and the Holy Spirit of God has recorded that truth for us in the pages of the New Testament. That's what we hold to. That's what we believe. That's what is sufficient. We don't need something outside of that, something different than that. That's the application for those of us who know the Lord. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord. You've never received Jesus Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior. Then the message for you is what John said right in the heart of this text. This is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. Eternal life is found only by virtue of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know who he is? Truly from Scripture? Have you believed what Scripture says about him? Have you embraced him, received him personally as your own Lord and Savior? If you have, then the promise of the gospel is eternal life. If not, if there's any doubt in your mind, Receive Jesus Christ today, this very moment. Father, you know very well that we need this warning right here in the heart of 1 John chapter 2. This was what was going on back then at the end of the first century when John wrote these words. It was taking place earlier in the first century during Jesus' ministry. It has always taken place. It's going on now here in our day and age. People, even your people sometimes, allow themselves to be misled, to be deceived, to be confused. And they go away from the truth as revealed in your word, looking for something different, something more, something new. So may we hear what your Holy Spirit has said through the Apostle John. Let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. May we be steadfast, immovable, never veering away from your truth. And Father, in closing, we pray for anyone who is with us this morning, anyone who is hearing these words, by extension, who does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, may they hear the promise of the gospel, the promise of eternal life. May they be willing to let go of whatever is holding them back to embrace, to receive Jesus Christ by faith. May they come to know him this day and by coming to know him have eternal life. We think of his own words, this is life eternal that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Father, may that be enough for us to know you, to know your son, to have eternal life. Thank you for the promise of the gospel. May we cling to it, hold to it all of our days. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.